0: Bible reading is found in Ecclesiastes 5, verse 17 to 26. If you see the poor oppressed in the district, and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one fish is desired by a higher one, and over them both others higher still. The increase from one from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with the income. This too is meaningless. So do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a labourer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart, and what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger.
1: Let me start this morning with a song, a song that you probably know, uh, you probably know the man who sang the song as well, Louis Armstrong, but I'll leave it to him to give us the word. The room, and I myself, I now there's a song that sums up how we would like the world to be. Uh, everyone would like to think that it is a wonderful world that we live in. Everyone knows that it isn't really like that. And the great irony of that song, I think, is that Louis Armstrong probably knew better than most uh, that it's not a wonderful world. Armstrong grew up in a less than wonderful world. He was born in New Orleans in 1900. His father walked out on the family when he was five years old. He spent the 12th year of his life, the whole year, in a prison for black offenders, He was married at age 19, but married to a woman who beat him quite regularly, uh, a marriage that didn't last for terribly long. In fact, he was married, I think, four times throughout the course of his life. He lived in a country where black people were denied many of the rights that were afforded the white population. He lived in in a country where there were two forms of justice, for black people and for white people. I'm not sure how wonderful a world he really thought it was. Now over these past few weeks, we've been looking through Ecclesiastes and Solomon is expressing his frustration about life. His refrain is that everything seems to be meaningless and he talks about the things that he's explored to try and find meaning in his life. Things like wisdom and work and pleasure and wealth and possessions. And none of it's been satisfying. Someone's been frustrated by other things as well, frustrated by the injustice that he sees in the world, by the oppression that he sees in the world. He looks at the world and sees well, he sees exactly what we see, doesn't he? Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16 kind of offers us this little hint of hope. And he's, for sorry, he says this. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And it's not simply injustice that troubles him, it's the oppression that troubles him as well. Chapter 4, if you find verse number 1. Again, I looked and I saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they had no comfort Power is on the side of the oppressors and they have no comforter. I declare that the dead who are already, who have already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is who is not yet born, not yet being. Who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. I suppose that's one of the ways that Solomon's world and our world are pretty much identical. I mean, you don't have to look too far to find injustice and oppression. In our world, all you gotta do is turn the TV on and watch the nightly news. Governments and politicians will u- use their power uh, for their own ends, to make themselves comfortable. They estimate that Robert Mugabe got away with around about two billion dollars when he finished up as the president in Zimbabwe. Left the country desperately poor, but had two billion dollars in cash and assets, mostly property-owned overseas. But the doesn't even hold a candle to the most corrupt politicians that we've had around our world. Uh, I found a website that tells us that this man, Mr Sahato, who was the president of Indonesia for a very long period of time, was probably the most corrupt politician to have walked the earth. Uh, he got away with something in the order of $15 to $35 billion to 35000000000 dollars just made that money from all the businesses that he set up that the government had to pay for and the profits went into his pockets. And political power, sadly, is often used that way. And it's used to hold people down. It's used to oppress people. Have a look at chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, verse number 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied... Do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. That's kind of a sad thought, isn't it, that even the people ride up the food chain, even the king gets to profit from the injustice that takes place. It might seem like a cynical view of life, but it's it's all too often true. He's saying the people that denied justice, and you shouldn't be surprised that that's going to happen, because when you trace it through, it's the king and the higher up officials who will benefit from that injustice. Solomon's saying if life doesn't seem fair, well, the problem is that even the people who are supposed to make it fair are the ones who benefit from the unfairness. And you can see plenty of other aspects of this sort of thing in life as well. Chapter 9, verse number 11. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, or the battle to the strong, nor does the food come to the wise, or or wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned, but time and chance happen to all of them. This kind of injustice is a little bit different to the one that he's just talked about, but he says that things don't always go in the way that they should. The person who does the most work doesn't (coughs) normally get the best mark in the class, or the hardest worker is often overlooked for the promotion, or the kindest person is often ignored. And the teacher even goes on to say that all this injustice and unfairness, well, it's evil. Chapter 10, verse number 5. There is an evil, I've seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high positions, while the rich occupy low ones. I've seen slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. Whoever digs a pit may fall into it. Whoever breaks through the wall may be bitten by a snake. Whoever quarries stone may be injured by them. Whoever splits logs may be in danger. The guy who's just doing his job at the quarry or the timber mill, he ends up injured. Where's the justice in that? And we know exactly what he's talking about, don't we? When we lived up on the north coast, uh, I got to do a lot of funerals, a little country town. And after I'd done a few funerals, I noticed that there was a lady who seemed to be there at just about all of the funerals that I did. She'd always come in very early and she'd sit right in the back seat in the church. And I was never exactly sure whether or not she knew the people. It would seem strange that she knew that many people. But she came to church and she used to sit in the back of the funeral and sit there very quiet. And as soon as the funeral was finished, she'd disappear. I always thought it was a bit strange. I thought it was a bit weird that she had this morbid fascination with going to funerals. But Solomon would say, she's a wise woman, that one. So you have a look at what it says, chapter 7, verse number 2. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter because the sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. but The heart of the fools is in the house of pleasure. Solomon knows that it's the house of mourning that's going to give you the more realistic view of life. Not happy view of life, but the realistic view of life. It's better to go to a funeral than to a party. The funeral is facing reality, and the party is an attempt to hide from it. Now, I don't know if you managed to read through all of Ecclesiastes, uh, as we've been looking through it, and you may have done this in your Bible study groups, but I think there's a, a glaring lack in Solomon's logic in this book. There's something that Solomon doesn't seem to have as part of his perspective. There's a bit of a flaw in his thinking. Look at some of the comments that he makes. Go back to chapter 3 and find verse 19. See, he doesn't seem to really have any concept of life After this life Chapter 3 verse 19 Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals The same fate awaits them both One dies, so dies the other All have the same breath Humans have no advantage over animals Everything is meaningless All go to the same place All come from dust And to dust return All return Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. He thinks that possibly this life is all that there is to life. That when you're dead, you're dead. Full stop. He says that little or no concept of eternal life. Uh, Have a look at chapter 9 verses 5 and 6. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. See, here's the major flaw in his thinking. Here is the major deficiency in everything that he's got to say. Because the fact is, There is a life beyond this life. And Jesus came into this world to enable us to have eternal life. When we looked at Ecclesiastes a couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 3, and there's that tantalising little hint that there might be something beyond this life. In chapter 3, verse 10, he says, He, that is God, has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God God has done from beginning to end. See, when we hit the pages of the New Testament, we see that Jesus is the one who can give us that eternity. I mean, he repeatedly says that he is the one who can give eternal life. And when you look at things in light of eternity, the Apostle Paul says, well then... Your labour is not in vain. You're not wasting your time with the work that you do. And I suppose it comes as no surprise that Jesus says that when he comes again to judge, he will bring about justice. There will be an end to oppression. Jesus is the one who will take away the unfairness that we experience in this life. Most of the New Testament writers seem to share Solomon's frustration with the the problems that we face in this world. But Jesus says that he is the one who resolves that frustration. Jesus is the one who promises the, the ultimate justice. He is the one who promises freedom from oppression. Jesus removes the frustration that we can feel in this life. And Jesus gives meaning and purpose to our work. It's amazing how many kind of big businessmen you see who made their fortune and get toward the end of their life and start to ask, has it been worth it? I mean, what was the point of all of this? Well, Jesus is the one who can give that work meaning who can show you that there is a purpose beyond this life, beyond that income, beyond that job. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he went into a synagogue in Nazareth. And he sat down, as all of the other men would have as well, and the the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened it up and read this. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." Do you see what Jesus says he brings? Freedom for the prisoners, release for the oppressed, And the freedom is found in Jesus. The freedom will come in the new heaven and the new earth that Jesus promises to bring. Jesus is coming again to judge this world. Jesus will come and once and for all bring an end to the injustice. Jesus will come and once and for all bring an end to the oppression. So what are we to do? Just make ourselves comfortable and wait for Jesus to come again? Of course not. Let me suggest two things that we ought to be doing as followers of Jesus. The first one is this. Don't just sit there, do something. How do you feel about the injustice that you see in the world? How do you feel about the hardship and the suffering that you see uh, things like famines and disasters that happen around the world. How do you feel when you see those stories on the news? I think we should be frustrated by those things, saddened by those things, when we see hardships and injustice and oppression and corruption. And we should seek to do something about them. It's very easy to look at the problems of the world and think, well, all that's just a bit too big for me. There's nothing that I can do. But you can do something. And you should do something. And maybe something as simple as writing a letter to your local member, or signing a petition, or sponsoring a child through compassion, or supporting a group like the International Justice Mission who are seeking to bring an end to slavery in the world. And at the very least, you can just pray. We need to do something. We are wealthy people living in a wealthy country with comparatively few problems. But most of all, as people who know Jesus, we need to share his concern for the poor and the oppressed. And surely doing something as a Christian is better than doing nothing. But the second thing that we should do continually is long for the day when Jesus comes again. As Christians, we should be looking forward to that day. We should be wanting it to come. We should be longing for the day when the leaders of this world will have to stand before the ruler of the universe. This is not all there is to life. So don't think and act like it is. Live and think and plan and act as if there is a better life to come. Handle what you have. Handle your money in the knowledge that there is a life beyond this life. And until Jesus comes again, as Christians, we've got great news to share with people, haven't we? When people see how bad the world can be, when they see those stories on the news at night and they have nowhere to turn, we can give them the comfort that they need. We can reassure them that there is a world that is to come that is better than this. We can tell them that there is a place where there is no more dying or mourning or crying or pain. We can tell them that there is a world where there is no no injustice. We can tell them that if they trust in Jesus, the day will come when God will wipe every tear from our eye. So let me close with that picture from Revelation chapter 21 where John says this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We should be longing for that.